So beginning with verse 12, we read, Then Solomon sat on his father, the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. And we follow that with the story of Adonijah continuing to aim for the throne. Then verse 26, And to Abiathar the priest the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. Then the king said to him, Do as he has said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army, And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word, and we continue to desire that you would instruct us with it, that we would understand why you have recorded this for us, and that we we might be ready for the great day that is to come. For we ask it even as we wait for for our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Well, last week we began looking at at this section of uh, Solomon's first judgments. Solomon's first judgments uh, in relation to these four men who were leftover business from his father's reign. So we looked last week at Adonijah, and Adonijah, although it may seem to us like uh, he's just looking for a bride, we, we saw that he was rather making a play for the throne. And 
Solomon has him executed. Similarly, we looked at uh, Simei, a man who has just settled down into a new routine and a new life, and yet um, who uh, breaks Solomon's ruling and leaves Jerusalem, and so he too is executed. And, And the thing that both of those show us is that Solomon has consistent justice. Both men were given terms of life from Solomon. Do this and live. Both men rejected what Solomon said, or or what Solomon uh, required, and both therefore die. Now, one of them is being a traitor, and the other's just perhaps being forgetful, or maybe he's deciding for himself what he thinks matters or doesn't matter about the the rule of the king. But either way, we find Solomon consistent. This is what life requires, and everything else will be judged. And Solomon brings that justice. So we, we started looking at his first judgments, and we see consistent justice. The second thing we consider is Solomon's capital justice. His consistent justice is a capital justice. And we look at verses 28 through 35 to see this, the story of Joab's execution. Joab uh, shows that he he is feeling guilty in conscience because uh, the minute certain events happen, he knows that he's in trouble. He has a conscience which leads him to flee to the altar. Uh, The question is, what is he doing when he flees to the altar? Uh, And and I I think here is a question we can't give an absolute answer to. Is he fleeing to the altar in superstition or supplication? And the text doesn't give us enough information, I don't think, to make an absolute judgment call on this. And I sometimes think that God in his word does that on purpose in the historical narratives. Leaves us with a little bit of a question mark because far less important for us is determining whether Joab will be in heaven. Hopefully we find he is in heaven and we meet him one day. But far less important is that question than this question. Is our religion superstition, or supplication. So with Solomon, uh, with Joab, it could be either of these two things. I actually was shocked and upset at a number of commentaries. All of them thought it was just given that Joab isn't really a believer and that he fled into the tabernacle and grabbed hold of these altar, uh, the horns on the altar out of superstition. If I happen to be in this place, holding on to this altar, then Solomon cannot do anything to me. I will be safe here. It's a superstitious posture. Here I am, and I'm safe. Why? Because I'm hanging on to the altar. I I was a little annoyed that all of the commentaries I was reading just assumed that was the case, and I thought, well, maybe I'm crazy for thinking that there's a, a chance that he's actually pleading with God there. Then last week, Asher indicated that that's how he feels. So I at least have one other person in the history of interpretation uh, who who thinks there's a possibility here. 
Um, but I, I think God does that kind of thing on purpose. Again, is Joab uh, superstitious? I can't be touched here. Or is he going there and saying, I need the mercy of God? This is where God has directed us to come for mercy, where blood is shed. And I'm going to take my stand here and I'll die here. I'll, I'll die here where God showers mercy on sinners. There's, I think, at least that question. Um, whatever the case, whatever the case, there is temporary judgment. And it's a judgment that is a righteous judgment. Sometimes we can mistake something that if someone uh, truly repents, then all earthly consequences should be wiped away. I, I might have mentioned this at the book group a few weeks ago, um, but my first memory of ever hearing about a man, uh, George Bush Jr., um, was before he was running for president or anything like that, he was the governor of Texas. And there was a, a man who'd been convicted of murder, and he was on death row, and he was, he was destined for the electric chair very shortly, and he had a conversion experience in the jail. It seems to me with the little knowledge I have that it seemed fairly credible. And what immediately happened, it wasn't the man himself from the prison, uh, but all these evangelicals said, this man's been converted and sought forgiveness and pardon from uh, God and the forgiveness of the family who, who had the victim in it. Um, and so, Bush, you're the governor. You claim to be a Christian. And if you're really a Christian, you will pardon this man and let him off because now he's come to the Lord. And Bush publicly uh, addressed the man on, on death row and said something along the lines of, I'm very thankful that you've come to God and found his forgiveness, and I look forward to seeing you again someday in heaven. But the law of the land requires punishment for murder. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But it impressed me so much uh, way back, whatever age I was, I was, still, I was still living in my parents' home. It was uh, half my life ago. Um, but that, that got a lot of flack from evangelicalism for him not letting the man off of death row. But you see, Solomon has the same, uh, the same attitude here. Uh, even if we put the best light on what Joab is doing, he clings to the altar by faith, he's trusting the promises of God for forgiveness, anticipating through the altar of bloodshed the cross of Jesus Christ. And we, we should hope that we see Joab in heaven. And yet, Solomon understands God still requires punishment for murder. And that's what Joab did. He twice murdered other men in cold blood. This is uh, something God requires. I know we just thought of the, the Ten Commandments this fall, so we looked at God's requirement of uh, capital punishment with human society, Genesis 9, 5 through 7, uh, the blood 
of man will be required for the shedding of innocent blood. God has, has made this uh, very clear there after the flood. Um, but not only that, Solomon has precedent for having the, the holy place of God entered to set uh, things right. And that precedent comes from the wilderness days. When they were in the wilderness, a man came into the very temp- tabernacle precinct with a Moabite woman Uh, Right there where everyone was weeping and wailing over sin before God, he brought in this woman, showed her off, took her into a tent, which, which the language of numbers probably indicates one of the tents at the tabernacle that was used for storing worship implements. And right there in front of everyone committed this immorality. And, and one of the priests grabbed that spear and right there at the tabernacle of meeting thrusts both people through with the spear on sacred ground and God's response is he made atonement for the people and God made a covenant with Phineas that day Solomon presumably is currently working through writing out the, the books of Moses if he is in any way following what kingship required in Deuteronomy. And so perhaps he has that fresh in his memory as Joab is there in the tabernacle, hanging on to the altar. Who would dare shed blood at the place where the offerings are made? And there is precedent that God requires justice from those who would represent him, even the shedding of blood at times in that precinct. And so Solomon brings this capital justice to Israel. I think it probably was an encouragement to a number of people in Israel. I I want you to imagine, you know, Abner was a well-loved leader. We think of him as a bad guy because he worked with Saul and because he, he, he tried to hunt down David. But You know, Abner was a a man who served the one that was anointed as king, just like David had done at at the same time. Uh, Saul had been anointed. Abner was being loyal to a, a family member. And when Saul wanted a city of priests to be slaughtered, Abner said no. So we, we don't really have reason to think of Abner as a villain, even though we often do. He was a politician, and he was a soldier, and he did some uh, vicious things, and he tried to get other people on the throne instead of David, but that's not quite the same as being a villain. And here, even if he is a villain, he's murdered. Joab doesn't bring him to court, have him executed officially. Uh, the same thing can be said of this other man as well. And so Solomon is, is bringing justice. I wonder how many people during David's days looked at Joab getting away with it. Joab can get away with anything because he's, he's David's friend or maybe David's scared of him. Here Solomon brings finally justice and justice that would assure people even friendship won't keep the king from doing righteously in the court of law. And isn't that what we all, we all should desire to know that we can trust the judge to make the right decision. 
Well, then the, the third thing in this passage, the third aspect of his first judgments, is Solomon's merciful justice. Solomon uh, points to, to Christ as the final judge, but he also here points to us an anticipation of Christ, the justifier, in whom there is hope. And Solomon uh, presents this to us in his dealings with Abiathar. Abiathar, the, the priest. Remember, Abiathar fled from the city of priests when they were all slaughtered by Saul. He came to David, and he was with David the entire time David was in the wilderness. And then the one stain on his reputation. He was faithful to David even during Absalom's rebellion, but he sided with Adonijah for king. And so he is worthy of death. Solomon seems to imply here maybe Adonijah was also aware that Adonijah, I'm sorry, Solomon was also aware that Adonijah and Abiathar might still be in communication. There seems to be at least Solomon's wondering about that. So maybe Abiathar is still backing Adonijah. We don't know. But Solomon makes him a deal. You go and live in this place and don't cause trouble and you will live. It's the same deal he made with Adonijah and it's the same deal he made with Shimei. And I think that's important because here in this passage, he's, he's bookended by two men who rejected the offer of Solomon. They initially said, this is fair and this is just. And then with time, Adonijah and Shimei both ignore Solomon's ruling. But Abiathar seems to have lived out his life quietly on the farm, not complaining that he'd been removed from high priesthood, one of the two top positions in the entire realm, right? And he's been removed from it, and he seems to have lived out his life accepting that judgment. The result is, he doesn't receive death. Solomon shows a graciousness and a mercifulness here, and anticipates anticipates our God who redeems. Uh, not only that, I, I think a big part of the anticipation here with Abiathar is presented to us in verse 35. Abiathar is no longer a priest, and now he must live out his days as a farmer. But Zadok, the priest, is put in his place. Zadok means righteousness. And this is one of those moments in Israel's history when ignoring the names would be foolish. God put Solomon, Shlomo, his name is peace, on the throne of David. Um, a king of peace appoints a high priest who is righteous. That's the age you want to live in. The, the peaceful, merciful king and the righteous priest. And something we might miss because it's not spelled out for us here is this. Abiathar may not be the high priest, but he has a high priest. And that high priest intercedes for him before heaven's throne. And that priest is righteous. 
So Abiathar, this man who is deserving of death, lives his life out under the rule of the king of peace by the mediation of the priest of righteousness. What a glorious anticipation of what we get. We get it all in one man. And one man who lived out the names perfectly where Solomon and Zadok are shadows at best. Well, with these thoughts on the first judgments of Solomon, I want to conclude uh, this two-part sermon that we started last week by thinking about the final judgment a little bit more. Um, One of the things that we struggle with in the church today is God's judgment. We often think of what the scripture says about the final judgment as unfair. Uh, You will often hear evangelicals talking about how can it be fair of God to hold people who don't even believe in God to God's standards, which is a ridiculous thought. But, But that's how our hearts work. Our hearts are wicked and and deceive us into thinking that judgment is a bad thing. That God as judge, not just going around loving everyone, but his love for the elect and his wrath for the wicked is a righteousness on his part. We struggle with that. And so I was meditating on Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read a few parts from that chapter. But as we think of Solomon's series of judgments and executions and however terrible 1 Kings 2 might feel to our uh, 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 civilized ears, we can think of how much more terrible the day of judgment for those who reject Christ. And so for whatever we think of Solomon, this is what we hear of the judge who is to come. Revelation 19 verse 11 Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. I'll let you read what follows about what that judgment looks like in Revelation 19, 17 and following. Go and do that this week. It is a terrible day of judgment. And yet, this is how that whole description begins. It begins with us one day, praising God for the bloody judgment. It begins with these words at the beginning of the chapter. 
Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. There are three things there that in heaven we're going to praise God for. Not just say, oh, I guess that was... That was fair enough. In heaven, we will actually sing a praise song about God, and the three verses, the three stanzas will focus on these three aspects of his judgment. First, his judgments are faithful and true. Now think of what Isaiah said. Uh, He anticipated the day of God's judgment, that it will flow down from the mountains And the heavens will respond in praise, for his judgments are just and true. One day his justice will flow throughout this whole world, just and true. Well, I think that one, we can can maybe say, we don't mind that one so much. We can praise him because his judgments are just and true. But then the second stanza comes in. They praise, we will praise one day, Jesus, for his judgment on Babylon, the prostitute, the city of man. In other words, we will praise him for bringing judgment on the wicked, those who rejected Christ. How many, how many in this life who are like Joab and Shimei go unpunished? How many... Uh, In Israel, do you think, I already said this maybe, but how many in Israel during David's final years looked at the existence of Joab in power or Shimei running free and wondered at the corruption in Jerusalem? And how much more easily can we, without even a David on the throne, look around us and see the corruption And how often the irony, the evangelical church today, we don't want a God who brings eternal hell. But we also want to complain because where is God of justice? We we look around and we're upset by the things that we see. And one day we will sing praise because he will bring eternal judgment on the city of man. Not one injustice will remain unpunished on the last day. Not one abuse will be forgotten. Not one murder will escape divine justice. And then comes in the third stanza of the praise song that we will sing in heaven. And that is praise to King Jesus for the judgment that will avenge. Avenge. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with um, some members of our church about capital punishment, good or bad. Uh, all the high school boys were involved. Uh, I think maybe in, in CC, they were having a discussion about uh, capital punishment in a debate class or something. Um, but one of the things that I brought up that didn't seem at all persuasive to anyone else, except one or two of the adults, 
was the question of justice as an avenging of blood for the sake of those who have lost a loved one. Here's the family. They've had someone break in. They've had something vicious done and bloodshed. And shouldn't that be punished in a way that gives them peace? Whereas in our culture, the loved ones have to go every two, three years and argue for the person not to be put out on bail because our jails are so full of murderers and and violent people. And so they're just looking to get them out on the streets. I I knew a a family of a a police officer who every three or four years had to go and argue that the person who shot their loved one, who was a cop, who just pulled someone over for a traffic violation, and they shot the cop in cold blood, and it was all on camera, and if they didn't show up one time, the lawyer said, this guy's going free. The rest of your life. And, and so I, I tried to bring in this aspect of justice, avenging, bringing something tangible. And, and our sinful hearts have this propensity to say, well, then avenging must be sinful. Why can't you forgive? But Revelation 19 shows us that our praise song in heaven will be, Jesus has avenged. He has brought this justice. David was cursed by Shimei, but justice was brought. More innocent people than David suffer every day, but justice will be brought. And when we particularly think of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and who suffer and die as martyrs for our God, part of our praise song in heaven will be, that wasn't unseen. God saw, and the judge took note, and he will take action. One day, we will see him bring about this justice. Let's not wait to give praise to this king, but let us sing Alleluia, for indeed here is a judge who is faithful and true. Let's pray.